Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Lawrence M. Stratton, director of the Strover Center at Waynesburg University, giving a talk entitled Restoring American Law. Mr. Stratton's talk was part of the Challenging the Secular Culture Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. The topic today, um, which I, is an overwhelming topic, is you know, restoring American law. That's a tall order, but um, we'll do our part together. Um, on, um, on Monday, September 17th, 1787, after the Constitutional Convention approved the original U.S. Constitution on Benjamin Franklin's motion, James Madison recorded that the members then proceeded to sign the instrument. As the last members affixed their signatures to the document, Benjamin Franklin said that he had wondered during the vicissitudes of my hopes and fears as the convention proceeded, whether the half sun on the back of the president's chair was a rising or a setting sun. But now at length, Franklin declared, I have the happiness to know that it is a rising and not a setting sun. Our task is to keep the U.S. Constitution's light shining. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. wrote in his famous 1897 Harvard Law Review essay, The Path of the Law, that the law is the witness and external deposit of our moral life. Its history is the history of the moral development of the race or of the society at that time, Holmes observed. A few pages later, Holmes said, the prophecies of what the law will do, in fact, and nothing more pretentious, are what I mean by the law. Those dissatisfied with law's path trace the trend lines of future judicial decision-making and the entire government edifice and do not like what they see on the horizon. Each judge and each justice is a product of a confluence of political factors of a specific historical moment that profoundly impacts society's next generation. Constitutional law today would presumably be different had Robert Bork ascended to the high court rather than Anthony Kennedy in 1987. I was in Washington, D.C., uh, I guess a little over a year and a half at that point, and was there for the Bork battle. Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey, which affirmed Roe v. Wade in 1992, would presumably have had a different holding. I was studying for the bar exam the day it came down. Of course, President George H.W. Bush's two justices, Justice Souter and Justice Thomas, split their votes in that case. Justices appointed by Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama necessarily differ from those who might have been appointed by uh, Robert Dole or John McCain. But even if the Supreme Court, as Finley Peter Dunn's character, Mr. Dooley put it, Dooley put it, follows the election returns, all is not lost. The dynamic structure of the U.S. Constitution itself provides the basis for its renewal. Franklin said that despite the prejudices, passions, errors of opinion, local interests, and selfish views of his fellow framers, it therefore astonishes me, sir, he said, to find this system approaching so near perfection as it does. 
It would have been fascinating to pull aside and have an off-the-record off conversation with the publisher and author of um, a Poor Richard's Almanac to get his assessment of the strengths and weaknesses of each constitutional clause, all premised upon the sovereignty of we the people. What did Franklin think of the views of another Pennsylvanian named William Penn, who believed that good government required a combination of good laws and good men? As Penn wrote in his preface to the first frame of government in Pennsylvania in 1682, governments like clocks go from the motion men give them, and as governments are made and moved by men, so by them they are ruined too. Wherefore governments rather depend upon men than men upon governments. Let men be good, and the government cannot be bad. If it be ill, they will cure it. That's where we come in. But if men be bad, let the government never be so good. They will endeavor to warp and spoil it to their turn. The challenge facing Christians and all Americans in our own historical moment is to cure what's going wrong and restore the original principles expressed in the U.S. Constitution. 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr wrote in his late 1930s treatise, The Nature and Destiny of Man, that it is the highest achievement of democratic societies that they embody the principle of resistance to government within the principle of government itself. Niebuhr noted that citizens armed with constitutional power to resist the unjust exactions of government without creating anarchy. The political and legal errors of our contemporary republic can be resisted and reformed within the constitutional system. It's hard work, but it's a worthy task. Echoing the Constitution's framers, Niebuhr wrote that it may be taken as axiomatic that, the great, that great disproportions of power lead to injustice, whatever the efforts to mitigate it. Niebuhr says that the U.S. Constitution's underlying philosophy is characterized by a shrewd awareness of the potential conflicts of power and passion in every community. Imbued with this underlying philosophy, he observes, the Constitution protects the citizens against abuses of government, not so much by keeping government weak as by introducing the principle of balance of power into the governmental system. The U.S. Constitution's structural protections against power concentration sought to tame the prince, as Harvard professor Harvey Mansfield put it, by dividing the powers of government so that, as James Madison wrote in Federalist Paper Number 51, ambition must be made to counteract ambition, to prevent any single faction or combination of factions from dominating the whole. This can be seen, of course, in the separation of powers between the executive, legislative, and judicial branches in the government. We have the two houses of Congress and um, all of these other checks and balances, which in turn replicated the extended republic that balances state and federal powers. This constitutional rubric thus provides structural protections against the concentration of power as every power is checked and balanced. 
Justice Scalia has said that we should honor the structural protections in the Constitution to an even greater degree than the Bill of Rights. Echoing Niebuhr, Cardozo law professor Marcy Hamilton has traced the U.S. Constitution's system of checks and balances to Calvinist thought, which held that man's will is corrupt by nature, but also capable of doing good. I mean, I am a Presbyterian minister, so I had to quote that. Um, the Calvinist thought, which permeated the founding era and influenced Madison and other members of the Constitutional Convention, who were students of Declaration of Independence signer and Presbyterian minister, the Reverend John Witherspoon, who's the president of the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University. In her essay, The Calvinist Paradox of Distrust and Hope at the Constitutional Convention, published in the 2001 Yale University Press uh, anthology, Christian Perspectives on Legal Thought, edited by Michael McConnell, Hamilton describes how the Constitutional Convention was a contest in distrust. There is a sense that there, we could distrust concentrations of power from every angle. And we needed to uh, prevent them from, um, from tyrannically oppressing other people by uh, creating structural counterbalances to these power concentrations. She says, following the teachings of Reverend Witherspoon, they believe that properly structured governing institutions could deter overreaching, if not wholly prevent it. Regardless of the philosophical and theological origins of the U.S. Constitution's system of checks and balances, which also has enlightenment roots, the immensity of the federal government and its vast administrative structure today make it largely unchecked and unbalanced. Does anyone here also teach government? Um, we'll compare notes. University of Pennsylvania constitutional scholar Richard, Richard Beeman wrote in the Penguin Guide to the U.S. Constitution that Article I, Section 8, lists of federal powers constitutes the heart and soul of the U.S. Constitution because it specifically enumerates the powers that the federal government is permitted to exercise. I can count about the third week of each semester after we read the Constitution in, and read each of the clauses in Article 1, Section 8, someone pulls me aside or someone raises a hand or I get an email that says, Professor Stratton, I'd like to write an, a paper about how the government you know, goes far beyond the powers listed in Article 1, Section 8. And it's a, it's a new discovery. The light has turned on. I, I haven't done any auto-suggestion, but um, it's true. <laughs> the, um, but the elasticity of the list of enumerated powers, the catch-all necessary and proper clause, which actually Thomas Jefferson warned would uh, undercut the whole Constitution, um, and judicial stretching, as in Chief Justice John Roberts' NFIB versus Sebelius opinion, upholding Obamacare's health insurance mandate by recasting a penalty as a tax, limit the section's use as a limitation of federal authority. John James Madison's theory that the division of powers within the government would protect liberty as the branches of government competed with one another as ambition would counter ambition, I dare say has not worked as planned. 
University of Chicago law professor Eric Posner and Harvard law professor Adrian Vermeerly state in their 2013 Oxford book, The Executive Unbound After the Madisonian Republic, that the Madisonian framework is broken and cannot be translated or otherwise adapted to the administrative state, which is not a positive statement. In defiance of the Anglo-Saxon legal maxim, um, and I'll just say it in English, a delegated power cannot itself be delegated, the vast number of rules and conduct under which citizens are forced to live do not derive from accountable legislators, but from administrative agencies which broadly uh, interpret um, vague statutes. One day I went with a tape measure to the Georgetown Law Library. I remember uh, measuring, you know, the, basically the, the, the one bookshelf of the U.S. Code, and there are multiple bookshelves of uh, the Code of Federal Regulations, in which the agencies implement the codes. And I have the numbers in the book, The Tyranny of Good Intentions. I'm sure in the past 15 years, the proportion of uh, administrative rulemaking has radically increased. Um, in 1993, David Schoenbred of New York University Law School, or New York Law School, uh, in his book Power with Respon Without Responsibility, How Congress Abuses the People Through Delegation, that the American people are no longer governed by statutory law enacted by legislators who are accountable to them. And just this week, uh, Utah Senator Mike Lee whose father was a solicitor general, um, wrote in his just published book, Our Lost Constitution, The Willful, Willful Subversion of America's Founding Document, that unelected agencies now produced 99 out of every 100 pages of legal rules imposed upon the American people. Which raises the question, why didn't members of the congressional branch surrender legislative power? The pattern seems to be that as the crisis of the day creates a political movement for Congress to do something, often at the prodding of a president, Congress passes a statute, however vague, just to say that, that it did something. Um, you, you've all heard the quotation from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who said that Congress has to pass the health care bill so that you can find out what's in it away from the fog of controversy. And we all laughed at that at the time. Um, I'm sure it was featured on late night talk shows. I don't stay up that late. But um, if the bill was too specific, Congress might have to bear the political cost if the statute were to become unpopular. At the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue at the White House, the president would prefer a vague or open-ended statute so that he or maybe she could uh, more readily rewrite it in the administrative rulemaking process and, uh, and there would thereby be covered by a political fallback of, of blaming Congress uh, for this statute's ambigu ambiguity. If the executive action is ever challenged in the judiciary, the courts are likely let the other branches fight it out with judicial pronouncements such as you know, the administrative interpretation of the act by the enforcing agency is entitled to great deference. And other similar refrains which um, culminated in the famous 1980 Chevron decision in which the U.S. Supreme Court 
gave wide statutory interpretive latitude to executive agencies. Now, sometimes we like um, when, when the administration rewrites a, a regulation, um, which we would prefer. That really was what the case when the Reagan administration rewrote some um, EPA provision. But um, it can be rewritten in, in the other direction as well. And this public choice guess on my part that everyone's passing the buck may be one of the reasons for the decline of, of the legislative branch. Posner and Vermuli go so far as to say that researchers should no longer view American political life through the Madisonian prism, while normative theorists should cease bemoaning the decline of Madisonianism, because that's what I'm doing, and instead make peace with a new political order. They boldly declare, the center of gravity has shifted to the executive, which both makes policy and administers it subject to weak constraints imposed by Congress, the judiciary, and the states. They say it is pointless to bewail these developments and futile to argue that Madisonian structures should be reinvigorated. Instead, attention should shift to the political constraints on the president and the institutions through which those political constraints operate, among them elections, parties, bureaucracy, and the media. This is where their, their recommendation uh, will rattle you. Uh, Posner and Vermeule even posit that the centuries-old British parliamentary system, which depends on public opinion, should provide a cause for optimism. They provocatively conclude, the British record on executive abuses, although hardly perfect, is no worse than the American record and arguably better, despite the lack of Madisonian separation of executive and legislative powers. This positive philosophical shift from, um, we're looking over across the Atlanta to Big Ben, to the supremacy of the English parliament, with its unity between executive and legislative branches, seems radical. Structurally, the U.S. Capitol, White House, and Supreme Court will remain three distinct entities and locations in Washington, D.C., however intermeshed, with administrative agencies placed throughout the Capitol Beltway and actually uh, physically beyond it. But Posner and Vermeerle's description um, helps us answer H. Richard Niebuhr's first question in Christian ethical analysis, which is, what is going on? They recognize their call for a more organic approach to power sharing and constraint apart from the clockwork mechanism bequeathed to us by the enlightenment thinking of the founders may require more public attention than can be expected. But then they note that the old checks and balances system uh, depended on public opinion as well. And that's the critical point the calls for hope, however minute. Um, the values and principles in the U.S. Constitution are not good because they are in the U.S. Constitution. They are good in and of themselves because they reside within the hearts and souls of the American people and they are historic achievements. Our public discourse might be stronger and less shrill if we, had, if we would have more thorough and less heated public discussions about the policy contours 
of privacy, contracts, speech, property, criminal procedure, religious establishment and free exercise, and civil rights without having to resort to the courts, where judges at times arbitrarily apply complex webs of constitutional scrutiny levels and balancing tests. That's an understatement when I say that judges at times um, are arbitrary. The classic law school constitutional conundrum for those who accept Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes's statement, rejecting the Supreme Court's embrace of liberty of contract in the Lochner case, in which the Supreme Court struck down uh, New York State's limitation on the hours in which bakers could bake bread to 10 hours a day. Holmes criticized Justice Peckham's majority opinion by declaring the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. He was saying that uh, the court was just buying the, the thinking of a social Darwinist across the ocean uh, that was unconnected to the text of the Constitution. So usually in a law school con law class, I do it myself, um, you find the people who agree with Holmes and you find the people who strongly disagree with him, largely of a libertarian bent. And then uh, you know, we read a few more pages and uh, we study the Griswold case in which um, Justice William O. Douglas um, says that there, are, there is an unenumerated constitutional right to privacy when he says, and you've heard this before, specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights of penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that give them life and substance. So for those who, who think that, uh, that Douglas was right and um, Peckham was wrong, the question is why and vice versa. As both um, the majority in Lochner and the majority in Griswold, um, to some degree, and some people think, jumped off the constitutional text. Should people embrace one and not the other, or, uh, or embrace both, which uh, some scholars like Randy Barnett at Georgetown uh, try to do. But in this battle over penumbras and emanations, whatever they are, um, is lost a solid and thoroughgoing discussion of the proper scope of government regulation and economic and social behavior and, and social endeavor, which is, I dare say, it's tragic for a constitutional system, which begins with the three words, we the people. If we continue our discussions and engage our fellow citizens about the proper vision of freedom, liberty, equality before the law, and other great constitutional principles, informed by the Declaration of Independence and the tyranny it protested, it lays out, what, 17 uh, ways in which King George was a tyrant, we could realistically share Ben Franklin's optimism that the American constitutional system is a rising sun. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.